G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. It's not about whether you succeed or fail. Uh, it's really about uh, either you win or you learn. And everything we do, we either win, we make the right decision or we learn an important lesson. So next time we have a better outcome. Sometimes your investment is a home run and sometimes you learn what not to do. So next time has a higher probability of being a success. Welcome to Investing in the US, an Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I had the pleasure of speaking with a return guest, Mr. Doug Marshall. Now, for those people who didn't listen to Doug's original episode, well, I had him on my show back at 100, episode 123, where we were speaking about the mastering the benefits of commercial real estate investing. But for those people who didn't hear that episode or are living under a rock, uh, Doug has over 30 years experience in real estate, in the commercial real estate space. He's, he's got experience on both sides of the coin, both on the financing side and on the investing side. He's been involved in apartments and many other commercial real estate assets. He's also the author of the new book called Mastering the Art of Commercial Real Estate Investing, How to Successfully Build Wealth and Grow Passive Income Through Your Rental Properties. I'm really pumped and excited to have him back on the show to tell us what he's been up to, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Doug. Welcome back to the show. Well, Reed, it's a pleasure to being back on your show again. I, I really enjoyed our interview, our discussion last time, and hopefully we can have a good discussion again today. 
Yeah, we were just we we're just talking a little bit in the green room before we press record here, and I, I'm really excited to dive into some of the the topics that you're really you know quite well versed on. Um, but before we do get into all the good stuff, the meat and potatoes, as we like to say, can you give um you know the elevator pitch of of, of who you are uh, and, and what you know, your life story to date? I'd be happy to. I think you did a, a good job. I I have about 38 years of uh, commercial real estate experience, most of which is on the financing side of the business. And then I have 11 years uh, investing in commercial real estate. But, you know, I really kind of like to tell it, uh, my story from a different perspective, one that I think your listening audience will be able to relate to. So, so here goes. For the first 24 years as a commercial real estate professional, I was on that, you know, never-ending hamster wheel of low-paying jobs. Uh, you know, I was living paycheck to paycheck, and I was just barely getting by financially. And I realized something had to change. So in 2003, I started Marshall Commercial Funding. And for the first time, Reed, in my career, I was making good money. And I, I tell you, that really felt good. But even so, I knew there was no way I was going to retire well. Uh, you, you know, I, I could see that, um, that the, I could do the math and I understood there was, uh, I was way too close to retirement to make up for the hard lean years. I was, at that point, I was in my 50s. And I realized it was very likely I may never be able to retire at all. But at the same time, I was watching my real estate clients and they were doing really well. Uh, they, they were prospering. So 11 years ago, I started investing in commercial real estate. And today, Reed, not only could I retire if I, if I chose to, but I could do so comfortably. And uh, this year, for the very first time, uh, my passive income from my rental properties, when added to my future social uh, security checks um, significantly exceeds my personal expenses. And once, once that happens, when passive income comfortably exceeds your personal expenses, you know, you've arrived and uh, you've achieved financial freedom. So that's my story. And, and the reason why I'm telling you, the, telling you this is because I believe that many of your listeners right now are either living paycheck to paycheck or they realize that they aren't going to retire well. And, and I'm here to tell you if I can do it, they can do it too. That introduction was extremely important because the um, you hit a, you hit a nerve. A lot of Americans or just people across you know the Western um, the Western world do not have enough money in order to um, retire comfortably. And investing in real estate is obviously the number one thing or one of the number of top things to do uh, to in order to not only help you retire easily or more easily. Um, but also to help achieve financial freedom. And I think with all your experience, 38 years on both sides of the coin, I think you're extremely uh, well-versed. Um, and I really did enjoy our last conversation uh, we had on the, on the show about just all the ins and outs of commercial financing and real estate. And I want to get into those in a little bit. But before we do, um, tell us a little bit about your new book. I know you have a new book coming out. You did mention it back in episode 123, but it's, uh, it's about to drop, isn't it? And do you want to um, just maybe walk the listeners through just some of the top things that they can learn from your book? Well, I'd be happy to. Um... I think that, you know, most real estate books are written from the perspective of the author, which makes perfect sense. And, um, but mine is written from, from the perspective of my clients. So I've had dozens of successful high, high net uh, worth uh, uh, investors over the years, and I've learned a lot from them. And what this book is all about is really it's the compilation of the wisdom that I've learned from my clients. And um, I believe that that is 
just better than just my own 11 years worth of experience as a uh, as an investor. And I think that's incredible. And what are the when? So first, when when does the book drop? When can people get a copy? Their hands on a, a copy of the book. Well, they can get a copy right now if they'd like a Kindle version. It's it's available. It has been since September, but the actual launching of the book is December eighteenth. Got it. Okay, just before Chrissy, and uh, you know you can definitely get your hands on it. Now I'm sure we'll have all the links in the show notes later on in the show, and you will probably summarize where, where we people can get it from. But um, but but Doug. In the name, the title of the book, you, you describe the word art um, of commercial real estate investing. Why do you call it an art form, not necessarily a science? Well, that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. You know, from my years of commercial real estate experience, you know, I've come to the, real, the realization that um, those who really excel at, at investing in commercial real estate understand there's a whole lot more to investing than uh, just crunching the numbers. You know, we always think of it that way. You really need to have a firm grasp of the of of crunching the numbers, but there's there's a lot more of an intuitive feel to it. And um, I think that you know you know they don't look at the uh, potential acquisition as it is at the moment. Uh, a good real estate investor, as you know, Reed, is somebody that will look at a property and say, you know, I think that if I could do uh, you know, whatever with this property that I, they, they have a, a vision that they have for renovating and managing the property correctly. So that's more of an intuitive, subjective type feel. It's also about understanding uh, the market trends and um, perceiving how a market itself is trending and, and developing an awareness of where we are on the real estate market cycle, just to name a few factors worth knowing. And uh, these parameters are far more subjective than they are objective. And that's that's the reason why I titled the book Mastering the Art of Commercial Real Estate Investing. So, so what are the five questions every investor needs to answer before buying their first rental property or even their first commercial real estate property? You know, before I answer that, I would say that and I'd like to get your feedback on this, Reed. Sure, sure. Um, I believe that the number one problem new investors have in getting started is fear. When you think, Oh, 100%. The fear is the most limiting factor of, of anything. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not even American and I see a lot of Americans, um, you know, not even getting off the fence and, and doing a lot of this analysis paralysis, but not, never actually taking action. And, you know, it goes back to that, you know, that saying that you, you don't get ripped or you don't lose weight by reading about losing weight. You go and you get on the treadmill or you start eating better. And it's the same thing applies when you, you take it to your, your financial future. Uh, you have to, you know, obviously read and be educated, but then take, go out and take action. But, but the number one thing people stop them from taking action is the fear. So, you know, obviously you talk a lot about, about the fear in your book, I assume, right? Yes. And, I, and really, there, when I look at it, there's really two types of fear. There's the fear of failure, and then there's the fear of the unknown. Uh, fear, of, fear of failure is all about looking foolish in the eyes of your family and, and friends. And, and I get that. I really do. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think what new investors need to do is adopt a different mindset. It's not about, it's not about whether you succeed or fail. Uh, it's really about uh, either you win or you learn. And everything we do, we either win, we make the right decision, or we learn an important lesson. So next time we have a better outcome. Sometimes your investment is a home run, and sometimes you learn what not to do. So next time has a higher probability of being a success. So 
the first thing is that for fear of failure, you really just, it needs to be a, a change in the investor's mindset. Uh, you either win or you learn. And then the second thing about fear of the unknown, which kind of answers your question that you just asked about uh, five questions every new investor, investor should uh, answer before buying their first rental property. The fear of the unknown, most of investing in real estate is a big leap into the unknown. And every new investor could take away a lot of that uncertainty if they just answered five questions before they got started. And the first one is, do I want to be an active or a passive investor? You know, most, most uh, people don't even understand that they, they have that choice. Um, so if you want to be uh, an active investor, you make all the decisions, you, what to buy and how, to, how much to pay and how to manage and how to finance the property. And a passive investor leaves that all, all those decisions to the active investor. And his role is just to contribute the capital needed to buy the property. So let's assume for the moment you want to be a passive investor. The only other question you need to ask is who do I want to invest it with? Do you want to invest with a traditional sponsor? Do you have a, a friend that's in the commercial real estate business? Or, or do you find a, a sponsor through a, a crowdfunding portal? And once you've made that decision, you more or less can kick back and relax. You, you're, you've made the decision you need to make and you allow that a sponsor to make all the decisions. Uh, but if, you're, if you want to be a, uh, an active investor, you have three more questions to ask. And the first question is, or is who do I want on my real estate advisory team? You know, what knowledge gaps do I have that can be better filled by somebody else? And you could have, you know, this whole list of people you can have, you know, real estate broker, a mortgage broker, real estate attorney, just a few to, uh, that you could add to the list. So the first question is, who do I want on my real estate advisory team? The second one is, how will I finance the property? Will I shop the mortgage market on my own or will I employ the services of a commercial mortgage broker? And then the third question is, is how will I manage the property? Will I self-manage it? Will I hire an onset manager who reports directly to me or will I hire a property management company? And if you had the answers to those questions, just think of it for a moment, how much easier it would be for a new investor to buy a property because a lot of that fear of the unknown would be already um, answered so that it wouldn't be such a, um, an overwhelming task to get started. No, I think it's incredibly true about what you just described of the, the fear of the unknown, the, the difference of fear, the fear of failure and the fear of the unknown. And I think that's extremely correct and that people do a lot of what I said before, analysis, paralysis, a lot of reading, a lot of education, which is all good. You need to do that and, and you need to learn from people like yourself. But that, that fear of unknown um, is quite strong and nearly debilitating to, to some extent. So how do you advise people to get over that, those fears in order to start taking action and start you know, investing for the future? Well, what I've, you know, what I've uh, read, what I've, I've seen from my, the top real estate investors that I've had the privilege of, of working with, they really have... Um, they have two or three things that they do particularly well. And one of them is, is you're talking about analysis by paralysis. That is really true. A lot of people do that. And I find that my, my top real estate investors, they have like three or four things that they look at on a property and they, they, they know whether or not they want to proceed with that particular property. So, and, and, and what those three or four parameters are, are different from one uh, investor to the next. 
and they don't, uh, you know, they, as I said, they kind of have an intuitive feel about a property and they know if they can, if they can get a handle on those uh, three or four issues that this would be a good property at the right price. The other thing is, is that they don't use the, the fancy internal rate of return method or something like that, discounted cash flows. There's nothing wrong with that. I've never, I've not had one of my investors that have gone that way. They use cash on cash return or they look at other things that are much simpler and easier to uh, calculate, kind of calculating on the back of a napkin. So um, they don't get bogged down in, in the details. They kind of trust their intuitive feel about a property. That, that's very interesting because a lot of people today, as deals become harder and harder to pencil, you know, you need to understand the internal rate of return. You need to understand the cash on cash and, and how that, that affects over a period of time. But I guess what you're trying to say is that from a high level point of view, the back of the napkin is enough for them to make a decision. Is that correct? And, and, and the second part to that question is I wouldn't advise, I assume you wouldn't advise someone to go off and make an investment decision based on an analysis on the back of a napkin. No, 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 I wouldn't. But I can tell you that um, truly the, those who have been in the business for 30, uh, 30, 40 years, and I have a number of clients in that category, they do it that way. For a, a new time investor, you know, I would really think that um, the best thing it could do is to be a passive investor for a while and, and give their money to somebody else, uh, uh, a real estate sponsor. And, and I, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, you just need to find the right, uh, the right person to um, hit your wagon to. But if, if you want to do it yourself, then yes. I, the, the other thing I would suggest is, is that you start small. So uh, be modest on the size of the, the first transaction you do if you want to be a, an active investor. And you're going to then learn the hard way. There's only one way to learn, and that's just by digging in and doing it. You try your best, and then you're, you're going to get the experience that you eventually can take to the next level so that you start with maybe a, maybe a, a duplex or a fourplex or something like that. You get your experience uh, with uh, managing a property and financing a property and all the other nuances of the, of the game, so to speak. And then uh, maybe four or five years, 10 years, whatever, you, you, you get a 10 or 12 unit property or a 20 unit property. But you learn, you learn uh, the, from the school of hard knocks, so to speak, on the small property. Because if you do something wrong on a small property, it usually isn't going to kill you. It isn't going to, it isn't going to, you know, you're not going to end badly. You're just going to say, yeah, I, I wish I hadn't done that, but it's not going to uh, financially set you back that far. So learn uh, from uh, doing it uh, on your own um, by investing in a, 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 a you know, a first uh, rental property that's rather modest in size. No, I think, I think that's an incredible piece of advice. Just taking it easy on the first one, not scaling it too quickly um, but but in but order to be somewhat, you want to move the needle a little bit, right? Maybe buying a duplex may not move the needle uh, so much, but buying maybe a twelve or a fifteen or a twentyplex uh, would it would help move that needle towards financial freedom and, and independence a little bit quicker than just doing it in uh, dupl- two two unit times. Uh, so two units at a time. So um, yeah, look, mate, I want to get into a little bit of what we spoke about in the green room, if you don't mind, and we can we can t- we can talk a little bit about the the book some more. But I think in general, you being the the key person of influence and that expert in the financing realm, 
given where we are in the, the market cycle, given that at the end of 2019, 2018, I should say, and given all the instabilities in the market, one thing I wanted to understand is how are interest rates, in your opinion, going to be affected moving into the end of this year and in early uh, 2019? Well, as you know, interest rates have risen almost a full point in the past year. Uh, and what have you seen, uh, Reed, as far as cap rates? Have they, have they adjusted at all? Not, not so much, no. The cap yeah. rates I have not seen adjust at all. The people are still buying at you know, some, some, some markets, you know, secondary markets like Dallas, and people are picking things up for four and three quarters uh, percent you know, to five yeah. percent. Um, so it's, it's still very compressed, yet interest rates, like the, we're talking a little bit in the green room about the, the, the treasury in the 10-year, um, that's now trading what today at like five, including spread, you know, five point one five. It's it's yep. it's crazy. Yep. It's absolutely crazy. So there's a right now, as I see it, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I think there's a disconnect between uh, cap rates and interest rates. And if interest rates consistently go up over time, your cap rate needs to as well. It's just it just has to because uh, each investor is looking for a certain rate of return. And if uh, the value stays the same and the NOI from that, that property stays the same, but the mortgage payment, uh, because interest rates are going up, uh, increases, then that person's cash flow after debt service uh, is going to be less. And that can't continue. I mean, you can do it for a while. We've now we've done it for a year. And um, I think what we're, we're getting into is a situation where there has to be an adjustment sometime going forward. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I think it's actually happening right now in some ways, because from, uh, from what I can tell in my market, which is Portland, Oregon, uh, I'm hearing from my uh, real estate brokerage buddies, so to speak, that they uh, are seeing a lot of, um, of deals fall through. You know, they, they get them under contract and then uh, buyers walk away and they're, they're walking away because they're, they're looking at the numbers and they're saying, this doesn't make sense anymore. And so there's a lot of um, uh, sale fails that are, have been going on in the um, uh, more, more so now in the, in the past year than there has been in, in years past. And I think it's because of this disconnect between interest rates and cap rates. And I think at some point, buyers are going to say, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it at all. Maybe another half a point in the interest rate, maybe everything would stop. So I think that's, that's at least from my perspective, that's what I'm seeing. Well, they're saying that the feds are definitely going to increase the, uh, the, the, the reserve um, by another quarter of a point in December. They didn't, they didn't proliferate here in November, but they are going to do it in December. So how are you seeing, or do you ever look at the stock market and, and the, the, you know, um, Incentive, uh, consumer incentives and, and confidence in the stock market and how that affects uh, real estate prices and interest rates like that? I am not a, I used to be in the stock market in a big way. And uh, I got out about five, five plus years ago. I said, I, this doesn't make sense to me anymore. I don't understand the stock market. And one of the principles of investing that I, I believe is you really shouldn't be investing in something you don't understand. And I, and I got to the point where I'm saying, I just don't understand why the stock market is doing what it's doing. So I, I don't know if, you know if people are willing to now take their money and, and put it into 
into the stock market. If I were uh, somebody that was on the, the fence, I wouldn't put it in the stock market. I'd put in bonds because you can get a, you know, uh, a 3% bond now, you know, and that's not bad when you're probably getting a three or 4% cash on cash return of, of that, that good on some of these properties that are being offered today. So it's like you can get a risk-free, you know, 3% bond. Why not go that way instead of one that uh, uh, an investment in commercial real estate where there's no guarantee of what your, uh, your, you know, return will be. You have to work at it. It's not a passive investment. It takes effort to get it to, to that return that you're, you find acceptable. Yeah, it's interesting because I was speaking to, uh, I have a, a mastermind group every uh, once a month, uh, and I just had it this morning, and was speaking about the impacts of what the Fed is essentially expecting to happen come, you know, come next year, and the reason why interest rates and the bonds are, are increasing. And one of my guys in the, in the group was saying, well, you know, the, tr the, the government's trying to get as much white powder as they can in order to uh, have money on, on hand when the recession comes. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that in terms of you know, why bonds are so attractive these days? Well, I'm going to be a contrarian to your friend. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I think we give, we give the Federal Reserve way too much credit for uh, influencing interest rates. Uh, what they have, what they can do. I mean, they can manipulate rates. They did when they, with quantitative easing. I don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, I, I could talk on this topic for a half hour. So I'm going to, my, my problem is, is I think that they, the only thing they can do uh, right now really is, is they can, uh, they can increase the exchange rate, the overnight bank rate from one bank to the next. How would that affect a 10 year treasury? It really doesn't. What affects the 10-year treasury and the five-year is it's all about the law of supply and demand. And what we've seen happen is there's about four or five different factors in the, pa in the past year that have, that have been created such that there's a perfect storm that uh, is causing interest rates to rise. It has nothing to, do with, has nothing to do with the Fed. It has everything to do with, let's say, uh, uh, the number one buyer of our bonds in, in uh, over the last uh, 20 years has been China. Well, China has is now not buying bonds like they used to. So that means our demand for uh, the purchase of bonds is substantially down. While at the same time, we have um, ballooned our, our budget. And so the deficit is that much higher. And so we've increased the supply of, of bonds available. So you, those are one is increasing the supply of bonds, one is reducing the demand for purchasing of bonds. And there's a disconnect such that if we're gonna to try to get it back to where you need to, you have to increase your, the, 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 the uh, yield on the bond so that enough people will buy it. And that's what's happening. It's all about supply and demand. So- uh, Get back to that equilibrium, is that what you're Exactly. To? And you, so- you, You've actually brought up some very good points because I, I think, so, Interesting that you just mentioned, just to re recap, you're, you're saying that the number one buyer historically of bonds, US Treasury bonds, has been China. They're slowing down, and, and we, can, we can maybe talk why or if you have any opinions on that. But then, that, but then the way in which the, when I say they, 
um, the way in which they make it attractive, meaning the government, they have to increase the return on those bonds in order to get more people into buying them because the stock market is doing so well and you know people want, are, are liquid and they don't want necessarily want to put their money in bonds. Did I summarize that a little bit correctly? I think that you did. Yeah. Commendable job. <laughs> but, 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 but really good points because... You know, with all this, you know, we're talking about tariffs and we're talking about all this sort of global sentiment of, of different world powers. How are, you, how are you, in your opinion, why, why are the Chinese stopping, you know, slowing down? Are they just because their economy is growing so much and they don't need to buy um, as many stable bonds from the United States and their economy is becoming more stable? Do you have any uh, thoughts on that or, or maybe not? Well, I have some thoughts, but I, I think that there's two or three things going on for them. They... Uh, had excess cash uh, on hand and they needed to put it somewhere. Well, uh, that has that slow, slowly changed in, in their situation. In fact, they actually had a liquidity crunch about 18 months ago. And so they had to divest of U.S. Treasuries at that particular point in time. And when they did, uh, right overnight, uh, our, our, the yield on uh, 10-year Treasuries went up significantly. And that was because they, you know, they they increased the supply uh, into the marketplace, and to be able to sell them all, they had the, the the interest rate had to go up. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing is is that, you know, we're getting into this tariff situation, and um, I'm sure that they want us to understand that uh, if you know they have a lot more control over our our situation than we want, maybe want to. Believe. admit to and and they could they could cause a lot of pain if they re really wanted to by just saying i'm not going to buy any more bonds uh at this particular point in time that's and all of a sudden we would be in a world of hurt mm -hmm. so then uh, you know, looking into a crystal ball what are your thoughts on where the treasury is going given that given the scenario chinese aren't buying as much tariffs are going up you know it's a sort of a shot across the bow saying we do have a lot of impact on your economy so do you think the average investor is going to pick up the slack or is there going to be another big buyer coming along to pick up that slack in order to reduce treasuries and bonds uh, yield? Well, I don't see where it's coming from. I don't think the average person out there is going to be able to pick up the slack from a, a country such as China. So uh, I just don't see where that's going to come from. And I, I'm guessing that a year from today, and this is just you know, me speaking, but I would think that you know, treasuries have to go continue to go up, um, and I hope that's not the case because I, as I said, if we if they go up a full point like they have in the last year, I think uh, the, the commercial real estate market stops. I think it, it, until there's an adjustment on prices, uh, I don't see how uh, why people would buy. I uh, I just uh, about two months ago uh, sold a property, and at that particular point in time, I had had it for I think eight years. And I was a, a passive investor uh, in this particular property, and it hadn't done particularly well. Some some properties you do really well, and some you don't. And this one, it was it had a modest return over that period of time. And I decided instead of trying to uh, to uh, put it into a 1031 exchange, to, I just thought I I would go ahead and and pay the the, the capital gains tax this year. And uh, I thought that made a lot of, of sense instead of trying to chase uh, the next deal that in my mind didn't make sense. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's not going to be more of a, a trend uh, with other people as well to just say, heck with it. 
you know, I'm going to, I'll pay my capital gains uh, on this particular property. Not all of them, because some of those people, have, they've been trading into multiple properties over a period of 25 or 30 years and their capital gains would be huge. Uh, <laughs> but that was not one of those properties. It was a property I've owned for eight years that had modest increases and capital gains wasn't going to be that, that bad. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's all very good points you bring up and something I, I, I would love to continue talking to you about, maybe offline, um, about the, the impact of the stock market versus commercial real estate. And I do truly believe that um, consumer and sentiment, you know, you say single family, um, now with, with the short-term, yield, short-term um, uh, interest rates going up, you know, it's affecting house prices here and just, you know, if you're a single home buyer, first-time home, first home buyer, because things are costing more, right? Short, short-term lending is costing a lot more. So affordability is not as, you know, if I'm, if I'm a first-time home, home buyer and I'm looking at the mortgage and, you know, the mortgage just goes up $300 a month, then I might be, you know, reconsidering about what I'm going to pay for that, that asset. I do think personally that the stock market is more tightly tied to what we were talking about in commercial real estate and, and bonds and treasuries and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you bring up a very good point that if we don't have a buyer to come and fill that void, uh, treasuries could continue to go up, which is, which is very, very interesting. So it brings me to the next, my next question for you is, and, and this is more from a, because I'm in, in, interested to understand what you think about this, because I'm looking at deals right now and I'm looking at, um, I'm, get, I'm picking up a, a pretty health, healthy six, uh, five and a half to six cap rate uh, deal in a, in, a, in a really, really good market. Um, and the treasuries, you know, the, the, the Freddie and the Fanny is offering me stuff at like 5.15 um, and I'm then locked in for, you know, seven to 10 years with defeasance penalties. But I'm also getting bank rates um, uh, that smell and look like, you know, non-recourse, uh, interest rates fixed for an extended period of time at, at slightly higher, maybe 5.3%. Um, but I have the ability to either refinance, uh, you know, early on or sell it. What are you sort of? What's your advice to people borrowing these days? You know, agency versus a bank that sort of smells, or a local bank that smells and looks like agency. Well, I've been very fortunate that I have a few uh, lending sources that are very competitive to uh, Fannie and Freddie, and they don't have the baggage of Fannie and Freddie. So I've got lending sources that will do interest only for, you know, a couple of two three years. Uh, that will do a 30-year AM non-recourse, and they'll do it with a step-down prepay. And their rate is right around, the, the in, you know, depending on what you, you get, you can get a 5, 7, or 10, and, and their 7 for sure is uh, under 4, and it's like, why not go that route? Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is that, you know, if you went ahead, Reed, and got that, that Fannie loan at 5, let's say 5.2% or something like that, that could, in a year from now, that could really look good. I mean, really could. Uh, and you might just be thinking, I'm glad I locked that in for 10 years. The other thought, though, is, you know, you have to, if you're going to buy a property today, at least in my market, if you're going to buy a property today, it truly has to be a value-added type of property. And, and what I'm finding out is that there are a lot of people that are abusing the definition of value-added uh, you know, not every property that's out there is a value-added play. It, there are properties out there that truly are underperforming, and there are reasons why they're underperforming. You can call that a value-added play. If you, if you know what the, what the problems are with that property, then that's the property that you should focus in on. And 
it just so happens, I told you that I, I, I decided uh, to not, um, I didn't identify a property for that, uh, that exchange I could have had. And, I've, and I'm right now, uh, just in the last, you know, about two weeks ago, we, we found a property that fits the bill. It, it, it ha- it's truly a value-added play. The, the, the seller wanted to sell it for $7.5 million. We ended up buying it for $6.4 million. And it makes sense at 6.4 million. It never made sense at, at 7.5. So he came down uh, to, to where we wanted it and it made sense. And um, so we're going to put in a, a, a three years interest only with a, um, a Fannie loan. And um, the, the rate uh, has been quoted as 5.08%. And it truly is a value added play. We should be able to, with not that much for improvements, uh, relatively modest, about four to five thousand a unit um, in upgrades. We should be able to turn the property around and really get some good cash and cash return right out of the the box because of the interest only. And by the time the interest only is done, well, the, the, it'll really um, it'll really have a good positive cash flow. What sort of um, rental bumps are you getting for that four or five grand um, worth of work on the property and the units? Well, right now it's uh, the, the average rents are about twelve fifty, and we believe that conservatively we could get it to fourteen fifty wow. within two, within uh, two years. In fact, we we think that's pretty close to market right now. But this property's tired. Uh, it's a it's a Class C property up in Everett, Washington, hmm. and um, uh, yeah, it's, if you don't know, uh, this, the 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 Puget Sound area is a very competitive, uh, low cap rate uh, environment. And this one is probably really selling right around a six cap, which is, uh, is really good compared to the rest of the market. There's, there's, you know, a lot of properties in Seattle area, obviously is not Everett, but in Seattle is selling in the, in the low fours. So um, we think yeah. that that's going to be a good investment. And that's, and that's a true, you know, cause just you quoted their $1,200 on average a unit. For a solid market for a Class C asset, that's very good average on rent. You know, well, I'm, it is. It probably is for your market, but here it's just <laughs> typical. Yeah, right. Well, but but you you bring up a good point because we're actually just getting a deal under contract in Austin, Texas, off market. It was at um, uh, the five. I think it's five point six or five five and a half, five point six cap going in. We we we're, we're we're about the same metrics at what you're saying. You know, twelve about twelve hundred, a little bit shy, more shy than yours, about eleven fifty. But we think we can get it to around averaging fourteen thirty in about two years, um, and that's where we, you know, the fact that the cap rate going in is so good um, yeah. that that is, you know, in the Austin market, same similar thing. Things in in worse condition or you know, Class C assets are trading in uh, the sub, you know, sub fives, you know, four point five, and we're picking it up for a five point six or something like that. It just yeah. makes sense, uh, and, and I've always said that. If you can pick up a, uh, an in-place cap rate with you know at least fifty basis points on your interest rate, you're going to make some cash flow, and obviously you then have the value add to add on top of that. But it gets you out of the gate going quite well and getting your investors paid from day one. It's when you're inverse of that, which you spoke a little bit about before, um, when your cap rates are lower than what your interest rates are, that's a concern because if you're looking at deals that, in, in my opinion, and I'd love you to comment on this. Um, that if the the other way around, I don't know how you're making cash flow out of the gate, if any, you know, <laughs> because well, you can't. <laughs> the, and I think I was I was saying before we got started today uh, that 
we're in a situation right now, and it changed about a year ago, where we're in a negative leverage environment versus a positive leverage environment. And by that, I mean that interest rates have gone up uh, so much and cap rates have stayed down, uh, they haven't moved, uh, that for every dollar of debt you add to uh, buying the property, you actually are are making the cash on cash return worse. Your, your rate of return on your money goes down. It used to be uh, five years ago, or uh, for sure, that if you, the more debt you put on it, the better your cash on cash return, uh, because there was enough of a difference between the interest rate and the cap rate. And now it's just um, reversed itself. And so um, most properties today, if you add more debt, you're gonna uh, reduce your, your return on your, on your investment. Interesting. Very, very interesting. No, it's it's incredible, and it's good to see that you're chasing deals. You know, because let's ad- let's admit it, a, a a five to six cap rate on a Class C asset. I assume it was built in the eighties. It's still very low historically for where we've come from. But it's it, you know it gives you goes back to what I'm saying before is that that if you're getting a moderate moderate bump with um with your with your rents uh, on a, on a moderate capex plan you've got that spread between what interest rate you're going to pick it up for on the loan versus the ingoing cap rate you're sort of reducing your risk right you got a couple of years IO you're fixing the debt the, the rate for you know whatever you said 7 years those are things and, and you're putting moderate leverage on it you're not going and trying to get eight or you know Freddie and Fannie have certain DCR requirements so you, you wouldn't be able to get too much but um, you know, you're you're probably raising your capex dollars, I assume, from from equity. Um, so you're sort of again le- reducing leverage, uh, adding value to the deal, true value add, uh, and then you know putting some some attractive financing on it because in, in a couple of years time it may be it may be higher. Um, on that deal, with with the, the we spoke a little bit about the the varying of interest rates and how that's pushing cap rates. Do you then assume an, an exit cap rate expansion in seven years time when you come to sell this asset on, on your underwriting? Well, for my, you know, I, I, I am not a believer in using internal rate of return uh, on the, on a, um, for a purchase, because I think there's too many unknowns. You don't know how long you're going to own the property. You don't know uh, what you're going to sell it for. Uh, you don't know uh, what the inflation is going to be. All these things are, they're not, you can't even really guess. And I, I like using internal rate of return after the fact. So when I sell a property, I know what my, uh, the equity that was put down initially, I know the, the annual cash flows and I know how much equity got out of it. And then I can, I can see exactly what my internal rate of return is. It's a, it's a really good method of, of, of valuing whether you won or you lost, so to speak. But, but on, um, for, for me personally, what I look for in a property to buy, whether I want to buy or not, is I, I look to see, okay, in a value-added play, what is our cash on cash return gonna be in two or three years based on the things that we believe in right now? Because you can you know how much money you're gonna be putting into the property. Uh, you know how much uh, improvements you're gonna, it's gonna cost you for that. And then what is your, uh, what is your, your cash flow um, uh, after debt service? What is it gonna look like? And if I can get, a 5% cash on cash return um, or better, I'm, I'm ready, I'm willing to go ahead. Uh, and because I know that uh, generally what we have found in the past is that uh, we have underestimated how much rent, rental growth has, has gone up. And, and secondly, there's the, the situation with the, the value of that property 
uh, has usually done well, well better than we ever expected. So I've, I'm happy with a 5% cash on cash return. That's acceptable. And, it, and generally what I find out is when we, we go forward, we actually get something more than that. Interesting. It's, it's inter- you bring up a couple of interesting points, in, uh, and I, um, I want to just quickly chat on them, is that the, the growth rate of rental, of rents, do you think they're going to continue, particularly in somewhere like Seattle, Washington, or even in Austin, Texas, do you think they're going to still continue at the clip that there has been over the last six to 10 years, given the fact that we are a renting nation, more people are wanting to live in urban situations near where they, where they work, where they socialize? Do you personally believe that rents are going to continue to go up at, at that clip? No. No. In fact, they've already stopped going up. Uh, uh, two years ago in uh, Portland, they were going up double digits. Easy. Wow. Three years ago. Wow. Um, easy. I mean, it, uh, 15% would be oh, probably where they had gone up in, in recent years. And I think that's the same thing with Seattle. They went up a, 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 you know, very at a very rapid clip. Now, last year, they probably went up you know, more like 10%. And this year, they've probably gone up 5%. And I'm guessing that we're probably going to get to the point where at some point in the not too near future, they're going to just begin to stall out because we're at that part in the real estate cycle where new units are coming online. Uh, they're really nice and they're going to have to give discounts to get people in, which means every, the, the, the amount of, of rent uh, that other people can, you know, an older property can, can offer is going to be, you know, it's going to be affected adversely. So I would expect that to go down or if nothing else to stay stable. Um, you know, back in the great recession, um, at least in Pacific Northwest, uh, rental rates on apartments really didn't slide too much. They did slide a bit, but nothing like uh, uh, what happened in retail and office. So I think we're, you know, I'm not too concerned they're going to come down, but they might. But uh, I'm guessing they're going to level off. And if they level off at the, the rates that we think they're going to level off at at $1,450, because those are market rates today for a property of that size or that condition, then I think we'll be fine. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that that's the, you have all the right thesis and assumptions there to, to have, a good, uh, have a good deal. And it sounds like a very solid deal. And for everyone listening out there, uh, that is you know, a way which you go and you try and find those deals, you know, again, what we spoke about, you know, cap rates going in versus interest rates, that there's a true value add there um, in, in the market where your current in-place events, rents versus what the market rents are, and that you have a moderate CapEx plan to go off and achieve those rental bumps. So I think all those play into, um, and, and in a market, I assume, you know, and I don't know the, the Seattle, Washington market very well, but in a growing market where the um, you're in a path of progress or something like that. So, um, so yeah, so look, Doug, I have really enjoyed having you back on the show again, mate. Um, I like to ask, you know, the top five investing tips of all my, all my guests. Are you ready to jump into it? Sure. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Wow. I, I probably should be prepared for this, but I, I'm an avid reader. Yep. And, uh, I now, um, uh, when I commute now to work, I'm listening to an audible book uh, and I find that uh, to be a, such a good use of my time. Awesome. Are you, is your new book going to be an audible version for people? It will be eventually. It's not going to be for probably six months to a year. Okay. But, but it's coming. Okay. Yep. Uh, what is, or who is the most influential person in your career to date? 
Well, that's, <laughs> I could, uh, I could say I had uh, the thing I would tell you, unfortunately for me, the first a dozen years I was in the business, I had three bosses out of nine years worth that uh, were horrible people to deal with. Uh, they were difficult, demanding, had trigger tempers, but they were awfully competent at what they did. They, they really knew their stuff backwards and forwards. They were very difficult to be around, but one, any one of those three, uh, they, they really, I did learn a lot from them. I will say that I had to uh, because they were, uh, very difficult to, to deal with. So I would say I had one of those three bosses I had early on. Okay, perfect. Uh, what is the most influential tool in your business today, um, given either software or hardware related? Well, one of the things I continue to really appreciate is a, I, I used to do all my scanning on my HP printer, and that is so extremely slow. And I and I now I have this little a little device. It's called a Scan Snap, a Fujitsu Scan Snap, and I really love it because I can I can scan things uh, through that in in about one tenth the time uh, that I can do it with my Hewlett Packards. I don't know. That's the thing that right now I'm really appreciative of. It's probably not a you know a, a good answer to your question, but it's no, but I, I think those little those little. Um uh, little tidbits and little gadgets are, are awesome. Anything that makes your your life more streamlined is uh, is really really awesome. Um, so with with that, what has been the biggest tip for those avid potential publishers or writers or authors out there? Because you, you're now publishing a book. Any tips for for the for the people there who want to write a book? Uh, just start. Uh, and I and I I say that facetiously, but not not so. The the way I started my book is I I started blogging, and I started blogging eleven years ago. Wow! And um, every two weeks, I had to come up with a new a new blog post. And you know, two years ago, I said, you know, I think I'm gonna I want to write a book, and I'm gonna write it from from my from my blog post. So I I accumulated all my blog posts. I found which ones were what timeless, which ones were not. And then I, I organized them, and 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 then I saw that I had some holes to fill in my my outline, but uh, it was a whole lot easier to be able to write a book by just uh, starting with the blog posts and and moving forward. Have you ever heard of Rev.com? Rev.com. Rev.com is for those people listening out there. It's a really awesome little gadget uh, online um, service because I, per, like I'm. <laughs> I, I struggle to, I'm not a writer, like I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mathematical guy. Um, I do, I can write, but obviously I, I prefer to speak into, you know, to, into camera and audio, but Rev can take your audio clips and convert it into a transcript for you to then, you know, weed through and make it into a more of a cohesive blog. So just another little tidbit, uh, if you're ever struck, you know, struck for t- struggling for time, and you don't, but you've got a thought in your head, you can sort of dictate into your phone and you can email, you know, upload it to the Rev app. And, you know, I think it's a dollar a minute and they will send it back to you um, transcribed and, and you can you then work your way through it and sort of start structuring it a little bit better and, and that sort of stuff. So it's so a little tidbit. Um, Perfect. Doug, final question. Where can people reach you? They want to find out about the new book. They want to be in your sphere. They want to maybe just ask you any questions about, uh, they may have a deal coming up under contract. They want to pick your brain about the potential lending uh, revenues that they could go down, given how you know, the lending environments are changing so quickly. Where can they go to continue the conversation? Well, 
they can go to my website, which is marshallcf.com. And uh, that you'll be able to get my contact information from there. Also, if you're interested, you can order the book uh, from that. There's a, a book landing page. It's pretty easy to find. So I would, I would suggest they go there. And I would say that, you know, I guess what I would like to leave with today, Reed, is that, you know, early on, I, I gave my, you know, my story as to how I got to where I am today. And I really believe that investing in rental properties is a slow but sure way to achieving financial freedom. And if that's what you want to do, you want to achieve financial freedom as your goal, then owning commercial real estate is for you. And I believe that my book uh, uh, will help you in the process. It's easy to follow. It's a step-by-step instruction uh, type coupled with um, solid advice uh, about real estate investing. So I would encourage people to uh, go buy the book, Mastering the Art of Commercial Real Estate Investing. That's awesome. And it will be all up on the show notes as well. We'll make sure to get a link to that book up on on the show notes for this show. Um, But Doug, I want to thank you so much for dropping by. Uh, I just want to quickly summarize some of the things that I took away from today's show. And I think the big thing is your knowledge and depth in the stock market and looking at the comparisons between bonds and stocks and understanding international buyers of bonds and how that is hurting interest rates here right now and how that's going to affect commercial real estate. I think that was probably the number one key item that I took away from our conversation, you know, your, your, your uh, thoughts on, on the, the scenario and how we're going to you know, potentially may or may not fill that. Um, I also loved how hearing about a lot, your live deal that you're chasing in Seattle, uh, uh, Washington, and just some of the metrics around that, because a lot of people, um, it's good to, to break it down like that, to understand what guys like you are looking for and chasing, you know, given the, 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 the difference or the gap between going in cap rates and interest rates, there's a true value add there. Um, and the last thing I think is this, you know, being educated and, and understanding your journey. You know, you've been in the game for such a long period of time. You've been blogging for over 11 years. I think you just have so much value to give to people. So for anyone listening out there, definitely get your hands on Doug's book. Um, but mate, did I, did I summarize that pretty well for you? Any, you want to add anything else? I think you did a great job there, Reed. Well, mate, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Well, there you have it, another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice. And make sure you check out Doug's website in order to get your hands on his new smashing book. Uh, I would can't wait to get my hands on it and give it a bit of a read. And if you are interested to learn a little bit more about Doug, please head over to his website and you know, drop him a line because he's an extremely knowledgeable man. Everything about you know uh, lending and how to look at deals and how to underwrite deals. Uh, if you are looking at a deal right now, Doug could be your guy or your potential lender or bro- lender. Uh, broker lender um, in order to get you in, in touch with the right type of financing in order to make the deal successful. I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because we're, that's what we're all about here on this show and we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave and remember, go give life a crack.